I want to thank you all for coming. This is the, uh, the F.A. Hayek Auditorium at the Cato Institute. My name is Michael Tanner. I'm a senior fellow here, and in one of my many sets of responsibilities here, I handle welfare reform and welfare issues for the Cato Institute. And very happy, and in a larger context, the welfare stage will be hearing also retirement issues like Social Security and particularly relevant right now, health care reform. Uh, all of which I expect we will hear a little bit about today. Uh, we're delighted to have James Bartholomew with us today to talk about his book, uh, The Welfare State We're In. It's available outside for anyone who hasn't picked up a copy yet. Uh, it's a little bit unusual uh, for us actually to have a book forum on a book that isn't brand new. Uh, this book has actually been out for a couple of years, uh, gotten most of its attention over on the, the other side of the pond, but uh, is starting to get more attention over here. And there, there's a couple of reasons why we decided to do a forum for this book at this time. Number one, of course, James was in this country, which makes it nice and convenient. Uh, but number two, there is a changing political atmosphere in many ways uh, in Washington that makes the European experience on social welfare, very relevant. Uh, many times, uh, if you listen to Fox News at least, you'll hear Barack Obama referred to as a socialist. Uh, I think that that's probably not accurate, but in many ways he is a European-style social democrat in the sense that he definitely wants to enlarge the welfare state, and I think many of the programs you're seeing discussed would move us towards a European-style social democracy with a, with a much larger government role in the economy and in providing social services than we have today. Of course, the U.S. welfare state is already uh, quite large. Uh, we, you know, we tend to think of welfare in this country, the, the term welfare, as meaning a, a cash payment to the poor. But in reality, the American welfare state is much, much bigger than that. <clears throat> Even if you just want to look at payments to low-income people, if you take those programs that are either means-tested and therefore directly targeted to the poor, or programs that say in their purpose when the bill was passed that they were designed as anti-poverty programs, depending on exactly how you measure them, there's somewhere between 50 and 70 different government programs that are targeted to this group. And their total budget is somewhere between 350 and 450 billion dollars a year. Uh, if you take all these programs combined, uh, that's not just the cash payments, of course. That's things like Medicaid, food stamps, housing, and so on. Uh, but if you go beyond programs that are strictly targeted to the poor, and you look at other social welfare programs, other transfer types of programs, bringing in the broad programs of Medicare and Social Security, programs that are essentially welfare for the middle class, uh, at that point you begin to get a much larger American social welfare state. And the direction in this social welfare state has been growing uh, pretty much regardless of the president in power. Uh, certainly President Bush did nothing to slow the growth of the American welfare state, and in many ways he enlarged it. Uh, even in terms of programs for the poor, if you take the 25 largest programs for the poor, almost all of them saw their budget increase during the eight years of the Bush administration. 
and if you take the larger programs, uh, they continue to rise. Not only did Medicare, Social Security go up uh, under their own accord uh, during the Bush administration, but uh, he added a brand new social welfare program in terms of the Medicare prescription drug benefit. Uh, so the American welfare state has grown under him. And now if you look at the budget released by President Obama, uh, the welfare state would grow still further. The American welfare state uh, is scheduled to increase significantly above inflation and above population growth under the Obama plan. Almost all social welfare programs are scheduled to increase under his watch, both the middle class and those targeted to the poor. So I think we've got a situation in this country now where we have a large and growing welfare state, a determination on the part of many, I think, in Congress and the administration to move us even closer to a European social democracy. That brings us to the question of what are the results of that welfare state in Europe. And we're very pleased today to have someone who has written and thought extensively about it, uh, James Bartholomew, as I say, is the author of this book, The Welfare State We're In. Uh, he is uh, a fellow with the, both the uh, uh, Institute for Economic Affairs in London and the Adam Smith Institute. Uh, he also, I'm told, he originally, of course, we said he, and uh, I think the, uh, what was sent out to you, that he was a columnist for the, for the Telegraph. Uh, he's actually a financial columnist, so it doesn't actually relate to this, but, uh, but he does write to them, and I'm sure they'd like you to know. Uh, this, is a, this is a very fine book that I think uh, he'll tell you in detail about, but we're always advised uh, by folks on the American left that we need to learn from the European experience. When we're talking about health care, how we're the only country that doesn't have a national health care system, we need to learn from, from Europe. Uh, and I agree. We need to learn from uh, the successes and the failures of the European welfare state. And here to tell us a little bit about them is James Bartholomew. Thank you very much. A few decades ago, a friend of mine um, in England was rung by, in the middle of the night by an American lady who was from the Bell Telephone Company. And uh, she very politely said to him that, unfortunately, when his father had rung him from New York due to some accident that was not the father's fault at all, the bill hadn't been paid. They hadn't got on the hotel bill, it hadn't been paid. And she was ringing now to ask whether it would be all right with him if she reversed the charges onto his telephone line so that the call was paid for. My friend was a bit irritated being rung up at this time of night and uh, said no, he would not pay this call. And uh, he made a, what he regarded as rather a fine speech about how in America it may be regarded as a privilege not to, not to pay a bill, but in Britain it was considered a right, and he was not going to pay this bill. Um, and he, you know, so he's very pleased with himself, and his father came back, and his, uh, he, he told his father about it. He's rather proud. I, I told them where to go. And, um, and his father, who was of a different generation, was mortified. He spent the rest of the day trying to repay this bill, which was less than $2.00. He spent 20 times the cost of the call that he, ha that he hadn't paid for in trying to repay the call. This tells you something, just a hint, of the mentality of a large number of British people of a certain generation at a certain time 
that has changed. In Britain at the moment, uh, you have your headlines of politics at the moment, but in England we've had politics, we've had politics on the front page every day for the last two weeks, revelations about how members of parliament, that's equivalent to members of Congress, I don't know if this has been in the American press very much, but they have been stretching to the limit their expenses. And um, their expenses are meant to be, very modest by American standards, I'm sure, but they are meant to be exclusively for the, for the benefit of, uh, of their work, in order to do their work. Well, they've included paying for the pornography of the husband of one of the members of parliament, paying for the cleaning of a moat. <laughs> this has been claimed for. And some of them have gone right into what appears on the face of it to be illegality in terms of uh, claiming for uh, loan interest payments on loans that have been repaid. So I would argue that there's been a change in morality in the UK. These are just two anecdotes. But actually, I would also argue that the, the change has been much bigger and more serious, not at this upper, upper class, upper middle class level, but at the lower class level. There used to be a large number of really decent, respectable, honorable, admirable, low-paid people in Britain. I don't think you would stand up in England and say that was the case now. It would be regarded as somewhat absurd. There used to be a time in the 1950s, there was a, um, a sociologist who, who wrote a whole book about the mentality of the British in the 1950s and was puzzled by why they were so peaceful, because it seemed so much against real basic human nature. And he referred to the behavior of football crowds as, as orderly as a church meeting. <laughs> and there's a picture in the football, I'm meaning soccer. The, uh, there's a picture in the, um, in the book of a football crowd. And you can see these serried ranks of, of uh, men and boys wearing their flat caps, totally sober, restrained, undemonstrative. This is really how it was. It's difficult for young people in Britain to actually understand, recognize, or recognize any of this. It's almost as if I'm telling a fairy story. But this is how it was. And then only 30 years later, the soccer crowds were focuses for gang violence. The police had to be organized, horses. It was a massive thing. Stadiums had to be redesigned to cope, keeping the fans of different teams apart because they were going to fight each other. It was considered inevitable that they would fight each other. Massive change has taken place in the British character. There's a sort of delight in, among many nations of thinking there's something essential about your character that stays the same. The French person is like this forever. The English person, the American person. It is not true. And if you go to the cultural history of Britain, you can see the, ch the character of British people changing quite dramatically, not overnight. But in 30 years, it's possible. In 100 years, it's almost inevitable. Why has the change taken place? Why, instead of being proud of being British, which I certainly used to be when I was young, do I now find it a cause in many ways for embarrassment and shame? I suggest that the cause, or perhaps I should say be more moderate, say one of the main causes uh, this change of, of attitude and personality in the British people, not everywhere, but large sections of them, is the welfare state. The welfare state changes character. And I should perhaps say here, 
exactly what I mean by the welfare state because it does have slightly different connotations in Britain and America, I understand. In Britain, when we say the welfare state, it is meant to mean not just welfare benefits but also free health care from the government. It's meant to be free education from the government for everybody. It's meant to be pensions, subsidized housing, more or less everything that the government does that could possibly be regarded as increasing the welfare of the people or was intended for increasing the welfare of the people. Um, it is the case that Britain has gone further in creating a welfare state because it was consciously done. It was proudly done. If you are, if you are people in, in sort of 20, 30 years after the Second World War, they thought, yes, we failed. Can be, our, uh, our renaissance hasn't been as good economically as Japan or Germany. But, uh, you know, at least we made the welfare state. That was regarded as a good thing. They deliberately and consciously created the welfare state and thought it was a good thing. But, so we've taken it further than you, and I would suggest that the experience we had, it should be perhaps a bit of a warning to you about also taking it further. There are two kinds of damage that I think the welfare state has done to Britain. One is in terms of psychology and character of the people, and indeed the happiness of the people. So I think that's been affected too. And the second is in providing poor services in health and education. First, the psychological effect. Obviously, I start here with welfare benefits. Now, the idea of benefits of people has been around an awfully long time. I've even got a book on ancient Greece and Rome and the, and the, and the benefits of that time. So it's been around a long time. In the, in the Middle Ages, famous people of the time like Thomas More and Martin Luther wrote about welfare benefits, wrote about the dangers, how it could go bad. These issues are not actually new. They've been around for a very, very long time. It's only in recent times. In fact, we have a lot to learn by looking at the thoughts, the more honest thoughts, because perhaps because less trammeled by democracy, of intellectuals at that time. Britain started its what I would call the modern welfare state, because it's had its up and down over the centuries. But the modern welfare state started in around 1911 um, when um, unemployment benefit was created, national unemployment benefit, and that was increased very dramatically in, in, the, in the late uh, teens, 1920, that was much higher than it had been in 1911. And uh, then again, in, after the Second World War, there was the government ruled by Attlee, and that formalized and extended many aspects of, of the welfare state. Um, of course, all these changes in the, in the history books that are read, written in Britain are regarded as progress. There's no hint of, the, of any possible damage that they might have done. The, but I, I would suggest that the whole thing has gone extraordinarily badly. In 1950, that's after the, the, what in Britain is the famous Attlee government when they created the welfare state, or as, as people imagine, although in fact what they did was extend it, at that time, the number of people who were on means-tested benefits was 3.4%. That was less than 1 in 30 of the population was on these benefits. Now, since 1950, the wealth of Britain, I know it hasn't increased as much as that in the States, but the wealth of Britain has, has increased very dramatically. It's gone up by 165%. You would think... Logically, if you were told that, if you were, if you were Mr. Attlee back in 1950 and you were told that the wealth was going to increase that much, you think, oh, my goodness, there's going to be hardly anybody on benefits. There's just going to be 1%. But, of course, it won't surprise you that, in fact, the exact opposite has happened. 
As the country has become richer, absurdly, the number of people dependent on benefits has dramatically risen. I mean, even some years ago, 96% of young people had mobile phones or cell phones. This is not a poor country anymore. But the number of people who are now on means-tested benefits in the UK is 29%. It's almost a third of the people are getting some kind of handout. It is an extraordinary failure, extraordinary perverse result of of what was obviously intended as as a great human benefit. Of course, uh, this is familiar ground to you. I don't want to go on too long about it, but you always know, ask, why Why did this happen? And I, I think it's a bit like a mouse passing. Why, why did people go onto these benefits? Why did that happen? I think it's a bit like a mouse coming across a piece of stale cheese in a trap. The cheese isn't very nice. It doesn't look very good, but it's free, and it's there. So he goes into the trap. He nibbles the cheese. Now, this is a very humane trap. He doesn't get a, you know, a bit, bit of wire coming down and killing him. He just can't get out. He's stuck in the trap. In the short term, it seems like a good idea getting that stale cheese. In the long term, it ruins his career, ruins his ambition, ruins his long-term outlook. Before 1920, when the benefits got high in Britain, there was no such thing as permanent mass unemployment. Since 1920, Britain has rarely been without it. So I think there's, I mean, it's putting it very bluntly, you have the government coming in, offering very substantial benefits, often, I must say, politically motivated, not just, not just with good intentions, sometimes it's to get votes. Increased benefits, increased benefit dependency, and that's what's happened. Meanwhile, again, going further than the states, I believe, extra benefits on top of the unemployment benefits, were given to lone parents, usually lone mothers. And in Britain, it became normal that if you were a lone mother, you would get council housing. And that means free government housing. Not subsidised, it effectively is free. So these people are not earning anything, and they effectively get free housing. It shouldn't be surprising that if you had a, the benefits increased unemployment... The number of, people, number of women getting benefits dramatically increased. And the tendency to have children out of, out of wedlock dramatically increased. In 1900, 4-5% of children were born out of wedlock. In Britain today, post-welfare state, half children are born out of wedlock. One out of two. I don't think I need to tell you that every statistic available on this subject tells you that this is not good for the child. They're likely to have inferior academic outcomes. They're likely to be less happy. They're more likely to become delinquent. Of course, many lone parents do great jobs, and I know children of lone parents who are fine young people. I'm not saying certainly that it's inevitable, but the tendency, if you're going to make policy you've got to think about what's going to happen to most people. There are many children out there today who are going to be delinquent and unhappy and do badly all round 
because of this encouragement to to people to behave like this. And let's not pretend either that the the mothers or the fathers have benefited from this because they have suffered from it too. They're not made happy by this experience. And insofar as this leads to delinquency, it leads to crime. It also leads to crime, of course, is is the tip of a pyramid of uncivil behavior. It's, um, you know, for every person who goes out and smashes, a, a, smashes somebody up and takes their money, you've got another person who, who insults somebody else in the street, who, who um, demands their, pushes past in a queue and who is insulting to people. He says, no manners at all. It's, 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 this is becoming more and more normal in, in the UK. It's becoming a brutalized society. Not everywhere. I mean, I live in a nice street where this never happens, virtually never. But I see... The, the school down the road, which is a government school, and when they come out of that school, there are four community police officers outside to make sure nothing's happening that's bad. That didn't exist when I was young. My country has changed. I don't know whether your country has changed, but my country certainly has changed. And if you imagine, if you bring together the unemployment, the benefit dependency, the, the lone parents, the children without fathers... Imagine two different young men. Never mind the, the lone mother. Imagine the young man. On one hand, you've got a young man who is lowly paid, but he goes home at night. He's got a wife and child. He put the food on the table. He has a certain self-esteem, a certain self-respect. You have another young man who's living in government housing, and he's not working, or maybe he's cheat- working and cheating, which is very common, and uh, he's had several children by different women, but he doesn't see them anymore. Which one of these is a better building block for society? I can only tell you that the welfare state has created many of one kind. Now let me move to the services, the health and uh, education services. In fact, these also, I believe, contribute to some of the psychological effects I referred to but I want to treat them at the moment primarily as services. If they were provided by private companies, the government would have been sacked long ago. The performance has been so appalling. People have different ways of estimating the effectiveness of healthcare, and in Britain, those people who apologize for the National Health Service, I should think, choose particularly inappropriate and absurd measures. The measure which I would suggest is least open to criticism is that of taking, that I've, that I've come across in my researches, is five or ten year survival rates from cancer. These are pretty objective. There's, a, there's an organization called Eurocare which compares survival rates of different cancers in different European countries. And uh, let me give you some of the figures. If you were, uh, for, for women, lung cancer. If you're in Germany, the survival rates are not good for lung cancer. Germany, the survival rate is 10.5% after five years. In France, it's considerably better at 15.9%. In the UK, it's 7.7%. You're half as likely to survive in Britain as you would be if you lived in France. Prostate cancer, the survival rate's considerably better here. In Germany and France, the survival rates are 75%. UK survival rate is 
again, you're, you're twice as likely to survive in France or Germany as you would be, almost, as you would be in Britain. There's no doubt if you're going to be ill, you don't want to be in Britain. In almost all cancers, Britain has near the worst or the worst cancer survival rate. And Professor Sakura, who is a leading cancer specialist in Britain, has calculated, using figures provided by Euricare, that 10,000 people a year in Britain die unnecessary, premature deaths because we have a government-provided health service. This is 10,000 compared to the average survival rates in Europe. Not the best. The number of deaths compared to the best would be much worse. This is compared to the average in Europe. We have in Britain the most government-controlled healthcare service in the advanced world, and on many, many measures, and I don't have time here to repeat them all, but there's plenty in the book, the worst. Now take, uh, oh, I should say, that you may be interested to know whether there's comparisons with the United States. And um, the book, Eurocare doesn't do the United States, which is unfortunate, but I have found some, some figures on the States um, in colon cancer. The USA, your chances of surviving five years, 60%, or at least they were when I was doing this research. In the UK, it's 36%. Basically, if you want to live, you want to be you've got a better chance here. I know that in America, you often are very proud of having the best or the biggest or the mostest of things in America or in the world. Not in healthcare. In, in, in Britain, our, I know some of you think that your healthcare system here is, is lousy, but believe me, our lousy healthcare system is more lousy than your lousy healthcare system. <laughs> Now let me refer to state education. There was a government survey. Our own British government did a survey of literacy in Britain. Uh, basically, whether people were able to read a poster, like advertising a, a uh, pop concert, um, or a, a football match, or you know, a, anything of that sort, or reading, reading a bus, uh, a bus uh, timetable, and found that um, they were trying to work out what proportion of the population was really what they called functionally illiterate. They found that 20% of the population was functionally illiterate. One in five. When you consider that the population has been through 11 years of compulsory schooling, this is an extraordinary failure. Day after day, these children went to school. They didn't learn to read properly. It's almost incredible to me that people can think this is a successful and good system with figures of that sort. The main sufferers of this are, of course, the poor. The rich go to private schools and they use every trick in the book to get their children to the best government schools. Tony Blair made a great virtue of how he was not sending his children to private schools. No, he didn't do that. He sent them to the, one of the best government schools in the country. He, he bussed his child across London to get to a good private, uh, government school. The one n nearby was rubbish. He knew that. So, like many upper-middle-class people, he got the good government school. And then, of course, he hired private tutors. Private tutors are universal 
in the best government schools. Not, in a way, it's a sort of bringing together of ambitious parents in one place, and they, they, they encourage the school, they push the school, they give them private, private tutoring, and then eventually they manage to get results that are not quite as good as the private schools. I know your experience here is different, but I'm just telling you about the, the UK experience. Of course, the government always claims in this, as in healthcare, that things are going to get better. But despite the previous 60 years of failure, now they have just come up with the answer and they're going to, they're going to putting it to you. And the amazing thing to me is that the public often believes them. And one thing they'll claim is that now, we guess there has been a lot of illiteracy and bad teaching of reading, which became universal in Britain. Um, but now things are better. They've got a literacy hour. Everything's going to get better. And so... But just to give you, bring you up to date, there's an exam that children take when they're 16 called the GCSE in Britain. And if you don't get a, a rating of A to C, you haven't really mastered the subject at all. A to C is, 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 is basically what we would call a pass in the old days. Well, how many of children in Britain don't get a single pass at a, grade A to C? One out of four. One out of four children in Britain are not really being educated at all. What is the effect on them? What is the effect of somebody of, who's being forced to go to school day after day, aged 14, 15, 16, really not taking any interest, many of them not really learning to read properly? What are they, they're bound to look for self-respect from somewhere else. And they're going to... One obvious place for them to get it is by their peers, an alternative... Uh, uh, esteem structure within the um, within the school, from, from, you know, and that's likely to lead to towards some kind of gangs, groups, vandalism, crime. It, when I came across the idea that schools can actually increase crime, I was shocked by it. I couldn't believe it. And there's a, there's a in Britain, there's a man called E. G. West who, who who pioneered this idea. The more you read about it the more this becomes, ceases to become an extraordinary idea and becomes rather obvious. When I was young, the, um, Britain and America were worried about communism. It was a, considered a very obvious and dangerous threat to us, and newspapers spent a lot of time on it. Of course, I'm not suggesting the welfare state is anything like as dangerous to, to our, our societies as, as communism. But uh, at least... At least communism was up front. He would say to you, you know, well, we are, there is going to be dictatorship of the proletariat, you know, and you, all your money is going to be taken away. You know, you, they, were, they were honest and upfront about it. The, thing, the danger about the welfare state is it says, we're here to help you. We're going to, we're going to make everything good. We, we come with gifts. We give you free education, free, uh, free health care, and, uh, and benefits if you're unemployed. And that, in a way, is what makes the thing so insidious and difficult to resist. Communism... You know, you knew you had a, an enemy that was there and it declared itself an enemy. Now you've got an enemy which is, says it's your friend. What can be done? Often I'm... Uh, if I give a talk and somebody is persuaded, they'll say, well, thank you very much, James, but uh, now tell us what's, what can be done. And, in fact, one person who said this to me was Lady Thatcher herself, who, when she was, I was introduced to her, she said, OK, well, that's the problem. What are you going to do about it? And I, was, I got a sort of quick glimpse of what it must be like to be a junior minister in, in her administration. And I was glad I was not in that position. But the there is a genuine problem here. 
in that what I think is the solution that would be the best solution, not, not the perfect solution. I think one of the dangers is believing there is such a thing as a perfect solution. But the perfect solution to me, or the best solution for me, rather, would be to go back to where we were before. Now, most people in Britain have no idea that there was a before. They think before was people starving in the street and dying of starvation and not being treated. They have no knowledge whatsoever of the welfare systems that existed and were developing prior to the welfare state. No knowledge at all. It's not written in the history books. I've looked at the history books. The books that children are getting now, they do not tell this story. I, 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 did, I read history at Oxford. I didn't hear the story. It's, it's the history, story, history is written by the winners. The winners were the welfare statists. We don't get to hear what happened before. But let me tell you about just one, and there's plenty about it in the book, but let me tell you one story about one boy who grew up in a remote village in Wales. If he was in that remote village in Wales now, he would be sent some miles off to another school, because they have big schools now. He would be bussed off to, to, to a distant school, be a thousand children, something like that. And that school would be a low-achievement school, almost inevitably, and he would get nowhere. He, he, his, his lower, he, his, he was um, a poor boy. His, uh, his, father was a, his uncle was a cobbler. He was brought up by his uncle. And so he, you know, he, he wasn't going to go to a special school. He wasn't going to be bussed across London like the Blair children. So he, were, he would have had no chance now. His, his, his low status would have been embedded and entrenched. But no, he was born in the 19th century, and he went to a charitable school. And at that, at that school, uh, that would be paid for by the church funds, by charity, by donations from rich people, from some payments by the parents themselves, very likely. That's, that was a normal thing. According to a laborer would pay a certain amount, a professional person would pay a much higher amount. Of course, most people were laborers in those days. But they would pay a certain amount. While he was at this little school in remote part of Wales, he, learnt, he, he read Gibbon's Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, he read Euclid. He read many kinds of history, Shakespeare. He knew the Bible backwards. He was better educated, I think, even at the age of 14, than many undergraduates today. He went on to become a lawyer, and then became a member of parliament, and then became prime minister of Britain during the First World War. His name was David Lloyd George. On the healthcare side, all leading teaching hospitals in London were created before the government took over healthcare. There was an enormous number of beds, hospital beds, in Britain before the government took over. We know that because otherwise the government, the National Health Service, wouldn't have closed hundreds of hospitals. They had to be there for them to be closed. In one, even in one 10-year period, there was a 27% reduction in hospital beds over the whole period, we don't know the figure because the historians who don't write the history of this haven't calculated exactly how many beds there were before the NHS started closing them. But it is a vast number. Now, of course, you, it's true that you don't need beds as much as you did before because there aren't so many incurable diseases. People were laid up with for, for months after month in the old days. But those beds were financed without the government. Most, well, that's not true. They were, there were some local government beds quite a substantial number of those, but there was a very big charitable and private sector, which was growing, particularly for operations. The sector was growing quite dramatically. So 
I don't think, unfortunately, that going back to this is a practical proposition. Not because it's not possible, but because a democracy wouldn't stand for it. And why wouldn't a democracy stand for it? I mean, I'd love to think they would, but I don't think they would, because if I was a politician coming towards you for, for, for election, I said to you, vote for me. I'll do it for you. I will take away your free education. I'll take away your free health care. And I'll stop giving you lots of money when you're unemployed. Please, give me your vote. <laughs> I don't think it's going to happen. And so what one's really thinking of then, if you, if, if you accept that, and please persuade me that it's not true, uh, is what is the best you can do in a democracy? That's what the sort of thing that Mike Tanner here and others at the Cato Institute and others in institutes around the world are really trying to do. What's the best we can do in a democracy? And that is a very detailed, complex thing to try and work out. And it's a very difficult um, book, a very difficult um, series of programs to, to, to work out. Now, in America, you have shown it's possible to do some reform. There has been quite dramatic changes in, in welfare benefits. In Britain, the best-known one is in Wisconsin and perhaps in New York. But you will be, know much more than I do about these, but quite dramatic reductions in the welfare rules. So in a way, you have shown that a democracy can do some things that are quite dramatic. However, I have to say that I'm sorry to be such a pessimist, but I do think there is a trend in democracy that keeps on pushing, pushing, pushing towards more of a welfare state. And it's very hard to keep on fighting against it. And I think as countries become richer around the world, I mean, I'm talking about India, China, all around the world, as they become richer, they're more likely to become democratic. And as they become democratic, they're more likely to have welfare states, which will then undermine the quality of the culture and the country concerned. And that this is a, a, a worldwide phenomenon that is likely to persist. Nevertheless, we must keep on trying, and I hope that um, you know, Cato will go on trying to think of the best possible, and maybe I myself might write a book about the, what's the best possible you can manage in a democratic state, but it won't be an easy book to write. Thank you very much. Well, thank you, James, and uh, asked... Uh, Wendell uh, Primus here to uh, respond to James and to, to his book. I have to tell you, Wendell is a real rarity in Washington. He is actually a genuine man of principle, which is, uh, as you know, is something short in this town. Uh, he was an official with the Clinton uh, administration, uh, working on welfare in the Clinton administration, and he opposed the 1996 uh, welfare reform. And because he opposed it, he resigned. Uh, which I, I think is a, something that could be followed by a lot more uh, folks here in Washington. In fact, they all could resign. Maybe that would be a, a good start. <laughs> but, but at any rate, uh, I, I do think uh, he should be acknowledged for that. Uh, for that. Uh, second, he's obviously a man of courage because he's willing to come to the Cato Institute and defend the welfare state. Uh, and more than once, he, he's been willing to come here and, and talk about this. So I think we, we should welcome him on that. Uh, his background, in addition to that, he was with the, uh, the Ways and Means Committee in the House as a staffer, uh, helped write the Green Book, which uh, anybody who's ever not been able to sleep at night uh, here in town refers to it uh, frequently. 
And uh, he is currently the, one of the top advisors to House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Uh, he handles domestic issues, budget, uh, social welfare issues, uh, health care. He is not, as far as I know, involved at all in the CIA briefings, so we will leave that out of it for the moment. Uh, but we're very happy to have him here uh, to tell us uh, what, why we should be moving to European-style social democracy. Wendell. Uh, well, thank you, Michael, for that very kind introduction. Um, uh, just as a way of introduction and background, I, I want to tell you that I'm a Calvinist, an economist, a lover of markets and justice, and a sports fan. Uh, and I'll explain what all of that means in a few minutes here in terms of critiquing the book. Uh, it is a very big book. I mean, in the sense of what I found very unsatisfying, except at the very end of your remarks, is, um, you know, where do we go from here? Uh, because right now I kind of have the advantage. I mean, if I look at our capitalist society, and you recognize that we haven't solved the problem of the economic cycle. We've lost about 6 million jobs um, since December of uh, 2007. Uh, we've seen the Wall Street greed, et cetera. Um, that, you know, you, as you just said, as a politician, you're not going to go and say we shouldn't have the unemployment benefits. So the, the real question, it seems to me, in a democracy is how do we balance kind of what I'll call the capitalist society? And in our capitalist society, there is no, uh, we'd like to think, you know, everybody can earn a living wage. Uh, but that's not true. I mean, we have very uneven rewards from our capitalist uh, society. If you look at the top 1%, according to the CBO data over the last 25 years, that top 1% has gained about 200% in real uh, income. The middle fifth has gained about 15%, and the bottom, this is not even talking about the levels we're talking about. And if you have a, uh, um, let's say, a democratic view, and you think about the 4 million, a little over 4 million children that are born in this country each year, and you don't know whether they're going to be born, whether put yourself into that shoe just for a moment. Um, and you don't know whether you're going to be born black, white, or Hispanic. You don't know whether your parents are going to stay together throughout your childhood. You don't know what kind of an educational system you would want, you, you would go to. It's whatever those probabilities are. What kind of a society would you like to be born into such that you as this child can kind of achieve all of your God-given abilities, talents, etc. Um, and, you know, I'd like to think uh, that we really have to combine the best of the free market, the best of the capitalist viewpoint, if you will, along with the democratic principles of trying to make sure that everybody, no matter what lot, they were born into, what neighborhood they were born into, can achieve all of their God-given ability. Now, having said that, um, you know, I, you know, there's, 
you know, again, there's no, there's no guarantee that each person can earn a, a living wage. If you have an IQ of 70 or a disability, people make mistakes. Bristol Palin made a mistake. Uh, you know, but she has a family support system now that I'm sure will overcome that mistake. I've made mistakes. My son uh, made a huge mistake. He was walking along the road. He had gone into Houston. Um, he got very drunk. They took a cab back. He didn't drive. Uh, and then he crossed the street uh, right near his place, and the car didn't see him. He didn't see the car. And um, he was thrown 35 feet into the air, et cetera, et cetera. By the grace of God, he's lived. He was five and a half days into the hospital, $190,000 later, et cetera. He's, it's remarkable. Um, but if he had been somebody else, where would he have been? And he recovered from that. So I guess what I'm trying to paint is we all make mistakes. And um, the question is, how do we balance those risks? And when... We say the welfare state. I think in America, the welfare state is a very, that's not a very, it's a pejorative term. Uh, in this book basically covers everything. I mean, our social insurance system as well as our welfare system. I mean, Michael made that point. Uh, and it really is to take care of all of those risks. And right now, I'm primarily in the health world. And I'm not saying the British system by any means is perfect, but ours isn't either. Uh, you know, we have roughly 50 million Americans now who don't have insurance. Now, don't pretend that they don't have any kind of health care. I mean, according to the CBO volumes, that average uninsured person in the United States does get about 60% of what an average insured. I mean... That person does walk into emergency rooms on occasion. And if you look at that 60%, about a third of that comes out of their pocket. About a third of it is probably reimbursed um, through, you know, we have Medicare and Medicaid disproportionate share adjustments, et cetera. And another third is bad debt. It probably gets passed on to your uh, private insurance of some kind. But... I don't think anyone would argue that our system is perfect, either in terms of access, in terms of quality, or in terms of uh, cost. We have enormous variations. You can go to the Dartmouth uh, data, and, and you can also read Peter Orzag's editorial in the Wall Street Journal on Friday. We have three-to-one differences in average state cost per Medicare in this system. And Medicare is uh, a system that basically pays the same amount. It covers the same uh, hospital, doctors, et cetera, et cetera. So why should cost in Minneapolis be so much lower than cost in Medicare? And the health experts will tell you that we don't have better health outcomes in Minneapolis, I mean, any worse outcomes in Minneapolis uh, versus um, Miami. Um, and I think, um, again, you look at our insurance system right now, Karen Ignati is, I think, fighting very hard on behalf of AHIP 
you know, they've admitted there's lots of problems. Our free market system, if you will, has really, I would accuse the insurance industry to some extent, is they don't want to manage risk. They want to avoid risk. Uh, And so, you know, we have a whole underwriting business so that if you have a pre-existing condition, you're going to be paying more. Well, um, I mean, the truth is that um, health and health, the concept of health insurance is very hard to insure. If you're born as a child with uh, type 1 diabetes, by definition, you're going to cost the system a lot more over your lifetime than if you're not born with type 1 diabetes. I mean, it's a fact of life. Um, and once you acquire a chronic condition in this country, diabetes, you're going to cost more than any other any other person, Ceratus Paribus, everything else being held equal. I mean, the purest form of insurance that I can think of coming from Iowa is basically hail insurance. I mean, there's no way. Uh, it is an act of God, if you will. And there's no nothing the farmer uh, can do from year to year. Now, where is that leading me? Uh, I guess what I'm trying to say is I think our political system, our democracy, basically does have to intervene with a capitalistic system to try to make sure, one, that people insure themselves against risk. I mean, that was the whole problem with Social Security. Uh, You know, people aren't going to look ahead and say, I need to take out pension insurance. I'm going to constrain my own consumption today and make sure that if I happen to live to be 95 or 97, I've taken care of that. We have the problem with long-term insurance. You know, we have a default system in this country called Medicaid that ends up picking up about two-thirds of long-term care insurance. Now, I would argue that that's a system that is begging for a social insurance uh, reform of some kind to make sure that people do save, do buy long-term care insurance, not necessarily do I want institutionalized care in a nursing home. Yes, at some point, uh, you know, if you can't bathe yourself, clothe yourself, feed yourself, you're probably going to need nursing home care. There's a limit to what you can do with home-based services. But to for a private insurance company to figure out how much we ought to charge a 30-year-old today to buy that kind of insurance and also have the right, and, you know, if we solve cancer and if we solve heart disease and a lot more people end up having Alzheimer's and strokes and things that cause nursing homes, you know, I don't know how you can predict today what the risks are 50, 60 years from now. And that's why I think uh, it's, it, it's begging for a social insurance. Now, Clearly, the welfare system, broadly defined again, has implications for savings. It has implications for work effort, uh, et cetera. And then how do we try to get the best in terms of the actual production of those services, whether it's education or health care, in a, a social insurance framework? And that's where I really... I'll be looking for the sequel, because while I think the book describes these problems, um, it really is very unsatisfying to me because it doesn't say how we deal with those problems, because the problems uh, 
that created this welfare state in the first place aren't going to go away. And um, clearly, I don't think we have the perfect system, um, and I don't think Great Britain does either. In fact, I would argue, and I don't probably haven't researched this enough, uh, that one of the problems with our system, as well as the Great Britain system, and this comes from my 15 and a half years on the Ways and Means Committee, is we don't spend enough. Uh, you know, in this country, uh, we're now spending 17 to 18 percent of our GDP on health care. Um, Great Britain, you're probably, what, 10, 11 percent of your GDP on health care? Yeah. Uh, so, you know, if the parliament would appropriate a lot more money, I am sure that if they spent 18 percent of their GDP, uh, they could get a better health system. Now, I'm not saying that's necessarily the r- the right thing to do, uh, but to some extent, you get what you pay for. And I think, you know, you could also argue in our public education system, and again, I'll go back to my democratic view, where I really do want each child to have an education system commensurate with their ability, and I want each child to and that's why we have a public education uh, uh, system, that lots of areas, jurisdictions in the country aren't spending enough. Uh, My daughter was in the Head Start program, was initially a teacher and then moved up. Uh, And then she was also a... um, uh, She subbed lots of times for the school system around Grand Rapids. And she would sometimes teach in inner-city schools in Grand Rapids and sometimes in the suburbs. She said it's a night-and-day experience. That child coming from an inner city would have done the homework, uh, et cetera. I mean, parents do make a difference. So when you look at the output of the education system, um, more factors are at work there than just what goes on in the classroom is is the point. Um, If there's one thing I would have to say, uh, again, I've been to... Great Britain once or twice. Um, There's two aspects of our welfare system I think they should copy, and to some extent they have. That's our our earned income tax credit, as well as our child support system. Uh, I And not that our child support system in this country is is by any means perfect, um, but I think I've often argued that our welfare system is um, sexist, we expect a lot more out of the female than we do the male. Uh, and I think we've got to, I mean, if the male can no longer stand to live with a female uh, and goes off somewhere else, that does not relieve him of his obligation to support those children, both financially as well as emotionally. And that's where I think our, our child support system to the extent that we have one, is much better than um, than the British uh, system. So let me, I've wandered all over the place, um, let me just conclude with this thought, and that is clearly our capitalistic system does not work. It doesn't ensure, and because we are, make mistakes, uh, we're depraved in a, depraved in a uh, humanistic uh 
in a Calvinistic uh, system. I think we need democracy, these other, the welfare state, really, to protect us against those risks, to make sure all people are protected against those risks. And at the end of the day, I'll come back to my Rawlsian um, uh, veil of ignorance, kind of, and say, you know, would you like to live in a world, again, again, go back to this thought experiment, you don't know how you're going to be born, what circumstances, et cetera, et cetera. Would you like to be born in a world where there is no welfare state? Or would you like to be born into a world either like ours or Great Britain? Uh, and I think both countries couldn't do a better job of their welfare states and employ some of the market incentives to do uh, better, but that's the subject of another book. Thank you very much. I, I just want to close before we go to some question and answers by putting something a little bit in context here in, in, in terms of what the, uh, the welfare state, at least in America, could mean. Uh, if you look at the current projections for spending growth in this country, and, I, and I'm reminded that Milton Friedman often used to make the point that the true cost of government is government spending, not just tax rates and things of that nature. If you look at where spending is going in this country under current projections, by the middle of the century, the government will be spending about 40 percent of our GDP uh, in this country. Uh, that's a slightly higher rate, actually, than, than most places in Europe right now, which is around 30, 37, 38 percent. Uh, the question is when that or what happens, of course, if the government is spending that money, uh, a percentage of GDP on what its priorities are, that is less money in the economy to grow the economy or to spend as we wish on our priorities. So how big a welfare state do we really want to have in this country is probably a debate we should have. We often debate the budget deficit. Well, we're spending this much we are only taking in this much, we need to raise taxes or whatever in order to bring in the budget deficit, and I think deficits are bad. But a larger question, and one that I think these folks have raised in a larger philosophical question, is how big a welfare state do we want to have? Do we want to have in this country a government that spends 40 percent of our GDP, uh, or do we not? And I think that that's uh, an important debate that we should be having. Uh, with that, I'm very happy to open it up to some questions, and then we'll get you upstairs to where you can have some food. Yeah. Uh, sure. And then I'm going to Ah, okay. Sorry, I think we need no, to... We, shortly. Short, okay, all right. Explanation. Any benefits that should be given out to the safety net should be fully portable in a competitive market. So hence, we need to privatize Head Start to University and allow, for instance, a child to go to any accredited school they get into up to the limit of their benefits. Same with health care. Um, the role of the government is to regulate, not to compete with the American people. For every government job, five are lost in the private sector. And if you want the math on that, it's very simple. Average cost of a federal worker or a state worker or a union worker is double that of uh, uh, the private sector. You're 40 to 60 percent less productive than the private sector due to lack of competition. And then you have lost opportunity, and that could be anywhere between 10 and 35 percent in terms of lost opportunity and rate of return. So hence you're denying the consumer, the investor, the taxpayer, and the safety net of the best services at the best cost and at the best convenience to the client. Hence, you're actually causing the problem and you're driving the unemployment and you're destroying the quality of care in the United States. Thank you very much.
Well, let me ask your sponsor. Let me try and boil it down a little bit. There is a difference between financing and managing. Uh, and so you can have a debate within the size of the welfare state whether you want to have the government run things like health care or do you want them just to help or education or do you want to just help them to finance it if they should be involved at all? Uh, any responses? Uh, well, I mean, it's, as far as I'm concerned, it's how much damage do you want to do? You know, sort of like uh, how much cyanide do you want to take? Um, if you take a lot of cyanide, it'll kill you. If you take a little bit, it'll just make you ill. Um, and I think that's basically my, my response. Uh, the government management tends to get very bureaucratic and um, very top-heavy. I mean, one of the uh, problems with healthcare in Britain is that because it has been free, because it's been managed by a monopoly, and even worse, a government monopoly, the overmanning has been sensational. I mean, I believe the Chinese army is bigger than the National Health Service staff, but it's, it, I think we come second. And it, the number of bureaucrats, administrators, helpers, advisors, specialists who are involved in, um, in running the National Health Service is vastly higher in proportion to the number of nurses than it is in the private sector. Uh, there is a thing which in England we call Parkinson's Law, whereby all bureaucracies tend to increase their size. The thing about the private sector is that it tends to have pressures because people can go elsewhere. And so it has very direct cost pressures, something which the, with a government monopoly, they can't go elsewhere. And so the bureaucracy grows and grows and grows and grows. It's not something that happens overnight, but it, it will happen. And even with management, you're going to get this, and you're going to get them imposing more and more burdens, which take more and more time away from people. In government schools in Britain, head, head teacher's offices are notorious for the huge number of instructions and, uh, that come down from the national government, from the, the local government, from, from the advisors to the government. So you have a gigantic amount of paperwork that is produced that takes time away from the head teacher. They, they don't have time to teach anymore. Head teachers used to teach. They don't teach anymore. They're doing too much time with admin. So, I mean, having just management rather than, rather than uh, actually running it is le much less bad than having a government monopoly, far to be preferred. But I'm not convinced that it is the best way to go. Wendell? Well, just very. I'm I'm fully willing to uh, experiment uh, with vouchers. I do think the the size of that initial voucher has to be um, uh, uh, has to has to be a reflect kind of the social economic condition of the household that child is coming from. Let's say in the provision of education services, uh, in the provision of health. I mean, it has to reflect. You know, if it's like say for a 65 year old, it has to reflect some of the. Uh, the health status of that individual. It can't be an equal payment per. per very, very quick. I'm going to be short and sweet here. Okay, uh, no, but, but no, no, no speeches. We just have to. You get like one line. <laughs> My name is Mike Ortner. I wasn't satisfied with Primus's response uh, raising the Rawlsian question. It sounds like Bartholomew did respond to the Rawlsian question of if, you, if you're a child and you're born into a, a family, you have no idea what demographics are going to be, et cetera. It sounds like the best answer that we've had was 100 years ago before we had all these problems, not Great Britain today, but 100 years ago where America and Great Britain were before the welfare state. So if that's the case, and the problem, the reason why the welfare state came up was to solve the problem of, okay, what do you do about 
if if charity and the church and whatnot are solving the problem for most poor families, but you still have this 5%, and it sounds like the welfare state came about to support that 5%, and I think the point is, and correct me if I'm wrong, that you can't have government uh, you can't have a government solution that's going to fix that 5%. I'd love to hear what your response is to, you know, it sounds like the Rawlsian question was being much uh, dealt with much better 100 years ago. So what is the response today when we realize the welfare state appears to be failing in that regard and making it worse for everyone? Uh, probably the most segregated hour in America is is basically at 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning. I mean, the truth is that, you know, I don't think the churches can do it. Uh, and you know where the rich churches are are not where the where the poor are, um, and um, so I I don't think we can put the clock back a hundred years and and go back to that system. I mean, the cost of health care alone, just that part of it, uh, doesn't it just won't work. Period. My name is Gabriel Roth. I imagine I'm the only person here who is actually one of the founders of the British welfare state. Uh, I voted for Mr. Attlee in 1945, and we did really try to make the welfare state work. We tried it for 30, 40 years. We just were not able to. And one reason, which was not mentioned by James, is that once a service is provided by government, it immediately becomes provided for the benefit of the providers and not for the benefit of the customers. Now, we see that in this country, uh, transport services, transit services, are not provided for the benefit of travelers. They're provided for the benefit of the unionized workers. Education services provided by government are not provided by, for the benefit of the students, for the learners, for the benefit of the teachers. Uh, this, I see, is a major problem. Now, what to do about it? It seems to me the only th way I can think of is to try to buy out these beneficiaries, retire them, and then start afresh with different forces. Let's not fight them. Let's pay them to get out of the way. That, that raises a very good question for both folks to respond to here, and that is the question of when something is provided by government, it is by necessity provided through a political process, which means interest groups get to act on the body politic, and often these, these services end up answering to special interests rather than to the, to the recipients who often don't vote. The welfare recipients vote less than social workers, for example, or uh, students don't vote at all, teachers do, uh, and, and so on. So does that impact the way the welfare state, uh, state works or doesn't work? Well, I would say, obviously, absolutely yes. I mean, I, I agree entirely with Mr. Roth's point um, that um, once, once you have a monopoly, it starts acting in, in the act of the what's called the producer interest. In fact, the members of parliament in Britain have been demonstrating for us the producer interest. And when sometimes you say, but, you know, in England, teachers have still got a good reputation and nurses are still regarded as, as angels much of the time. But 
you say to them, you know, well, actually, there's a perverse interest here. They're going to develop bureaucracy. They're going to be self-serving. They're going to have long, long, long breaks. They're going to have early re- negotiate early retirement. They're going to be off sick when they're not really off sick because the incidence of sickness among public employees is much higher than that among private employees. Um, when you say that to them, they say, oh, well, how can you say that terrible thing about our public servants, nurses and teachers and policemen and firemen? These are good people. How would, they would, how would they be? They're too moral and upright to do that kind of thing. Now you can say to them, you mean they're more morally upright than members of parliament then? <laughs> Low standard. <laughs> when the- I would just say, quickly say, I think it, it does depend upon this financing question, and, and I would argue lots of times, if possible, the goods ought to be privately produced, publicly uh, financed. But, and, and, but going back to our health system, Clearly, most of it is privately produced, uh, but there are still enormous variations we have in the quality. I mean, look at Medicare and the variance one sees uh, in hospital readmission rates, or I would send you to the Geisinger Health System in Pennsylvania, which I think you probably will get much higher quality care than another privately uh, financed system. So just because it's privately produced does not mean you're going to have equal quality and competition uh, solves all problems. I mean, couldn't, you, couldn't you argue that Medicare is an example of this, though, that it primarily exists for the benefit of the providers? I mean, it, it's structured in a way that uh, that is the benefit to the providers, a fee-for-service type of provision and, and so on. Well, I, I think our, our problem is our payment doesn't uh, take into account the quality of care. I mean, uh, I mean, Medicare right now is a very passive payer of bills, yeah. and we need to align incentives and pay for quality, which is what we're attempting to do, and the devil is a bit in the details. Okay, I've got time for one last, last uh, two, two last questions, or three if they're very short. You, you three, I'm going to take all three, and then uh, we'll let these folks answer, and then I'm going to get you to lunch, and you can ask your questions privately. So one, two, three. Um, my name is Carlos Alvarez. Two points. Uh, first, to Mr. Bartholomew, I'm not sure of the comparison between Britain and the United States. I've lived on both sides. Um, I'm not sure if that's the accurate comparison. I think we've seen better uh, ap- applications of welfare state uh, in Europe than there has been in the UK. I think if you look at the Swedish and Nordic model in general, and even as you said, the French in some measure, there is uh, perhaps the problem has been more in the execution and less in the intent. Uh, and then going to Mr. Primus, um, I have to ask you, why, and just looking at this from an outsider's perspective and sort of a logical point of view, why are all these services applied to everybody when not everybody needs them? And is there some way that the U.S. can make perhaps payment compulsory, especially to the wealthy and et cetera, but the benefits, especially for the people that need them, either opt out if they don't need them, if you're a farmer in Iowa and you don't need certain of the benefits that are available to you, or um, and either opt out or, or just more efficient in general? I mean, it would seem to me that an opt-out system would, would be, you know, ideologically consistent with both sides and would allow for a lot more efficiency within the system as long as you retain payment, as, as you've mentioned, from the top 10% who are the major wealth producers and who ultimately don't need those. We're going we're to have to keep these short, so go ahead. Very brief comment, actually. Uh, Mr. Bartholomew closed by saying what's next, what's possible in a democracy. 
To the extent either would wish to comment, I would suggest politely that we may find out very soon, at least in a test case with California, which is tens of billions of dollars in debt, and voters have an opportunity tomorrow voting on, on seven uh, ballot initiatives there that are going to, I, I'm reasonably certain, are going to shut down the government in Sacramento and its wild social and union spending. I think we may get a, at least a hint of what's possible in America when uh, legislators and executives bankrupt taxpayers. Last question up there. Um, I, I would uh, like to also give you a short comment. And the comment is that we need a welfare state. I mean, I came from India, and the only reason I'm here because the United States is a better welfare state than India. And, of course, England is a – thanks God England is a welfare state. A uh, hundred years ago, there was a question of what happened hundred years ago. They sent their unfortunate to pl pillage and plunder countries like India, and that was the welfare experiment. So I'm glad that's not happening. So please keep your welfare state. You may tweak with it. You may make it more efficient, but please have it. Now they only pillage and plunder their own citizens, <laughs> which, which is probably an improvement. <laughs> All right, I want to thank you all very much for coming. We have refreshments upstairs. Uh, these folks may stick around for a little while and you get a chance to talk to them. Uh, but thank you all very much for coming out. Really appreciate it. And appreciate our speakers very much.